Say the truth hurts, the truth hurts, so you about to feel pain And I gotta do work, God said I gotta do work Cause it's all for the name, savage truth Savage truth, it's the savage truth The savage truth, the savage truth I gotta be real, I gotta be Welcome to the Savage Truth Podcast. This is Pastor Roy Dockery joining you for another episode. And today we are going to uh, tag on to the last episode where we were talking about my hashtag or my kind of my policy push to make racism illegal. So for those who don't know, um, I do sell a t-shirt, make racism illegal. You can message me about it. Um, I don't think it's on my website. It's somewhere. I don't know. I don't really track the apparel stuff (laughs) because it's uh, less interesting than having conversations that actually change people's mentality. So um, I need better marketing on that, but that's why I have assistance. So we'll, um, so yeah, send us an email at info at roydockery.org. If you want to have any questions or you, um, you want one of the shirts and we'll connect you to get that taken care of. But outside of it, just being a hashtag and being a slogan or being a tag, make racism illegal, like I said, is a policy for me. So in the last episode, I talked about how white supremacy needs to be declared, um, basically terrorism and managed as such by the federal government. I also talked about how people should be penalized, whether it's financially or legally for wasting the police's time. So we can hashtag that blue time matters because we're wasting the cops time by having them chase down racist people's uh, false reported crimes. And then the third aspect of it was, is how do we actually leverage the police department to penalize and to, um, and to basically protect those who are being, um, who are being attacked by hate, you know, with hateful and racist um, actions, whether that's through um, disturbing the peace, disorderly conduct, um, or however we can apply current things that are on the book. So interestingly enough, um, you know, I have a friend of mine, his name is Bruce, and, you know, he's one of the, one of the early people who kind of got the make racism legal shirt. He follows me on social media. He follows the podcast. And we he shared just some exchanges where he had some interesting interactions. So one thing I want to do is just bring him on to the show today and even just talk about from his perspective um, as a white male who's kind of from the East Coast, but now living um, in, in what people act like is the liberal bastion of America, which is California, um, living out in California, and then what some of his interactions have looked like and even how he perceives it. So uh, join me in welcoming my friend Bruce to the show. Bruce, how you doing today, man? Doing great. Living in California. What can I say? Sun, sun shining. Sun shining. Uh, any, any rain or you just, just sunshiny days? Sunshiny days. 300, 300 sunshiny days a year. So you kind of <laughs> miss the rain after a little while. Can't complain about that. So it would, it, would beg, it would beg to ask the question, what exactly could anybody in California be angry about with such beautiful weather? Um, so, so what have you, what have you been encountering and how has your interactions been kind of wearing the make racism, um, illegal shirt, um, with you or your wife out in public? So, a few times that we, we've worn the shirt, it's been, you get sideways glances, like people are looking at you, they break their neck going, wait, what's going on here as they walk past you. And then you have a few people that for whatever reason, they really need to come up to you and speak their mind. And I've had three uh, negative encounters, I would say, and one positive encounter uh, since the last time we spoke. So it's been interesting to see people come up and be like, well, wait a second, you know, you're white and you're you got to make racism illegal shirt. What's going on here? And that's kind of how they 
first come up to me and it's like, well, what do you mean by this? And I kind of have to sit there and explain to it. And I'm like, you know, we, we, we as a country have made racism illegal just enough to kind of shut people up. But as we're progressing into the 2020s, 2021, and so on, it, it's social media. Media is bringing to light way more racial um, instances. And it's, it's not just black, it's not just white, but across the board. And it, it, it's honestly just not enough anymore of what, what we're doing as a government and policies just to stop it. It's getting out of hand. Yeah. That's kind of why start off with these conversations uh my first interaction uh was with a woman and she was just like well well it's 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 illegal i'm like yes i understand that in a in a general sense it's illegal but we're not talking about just the i cannot hire you because you're not you know black yeah i'm talking about right because in that we're categorized that discrimination is illegal yes right um and it's it's making laws to help people. I hesitate to use the word change their minds, but that's what really needs to happen is we need to make these laws to help people realize that police and uh, the government aren't the catch-all for these particular things. You cannot call the cops on someone just because they're black in your neighborhood. Or you can't just sit here on a... A racist tyrant against the white people going cracker this cracker that it, it goes across the board with everything that these things should be eliminated from our society and we can't do this without the backing of laws and the well like you said before the financial punishments that come along with this because once you start hurting people's money is that's when start people start question things like you know is, is this black guy really that bad well i'm about to pay 700 dollars to call the cops and find out right like that's right that's it, it, it's the penalty associated right right it's like when we penalize yeah. behavior um like that's that's kind of the point of the legal system right like there's there's mm-hmm. the deed but then the the government you know even from a from a religious perspective is supposed to be the sword right so it's like the religious institutions the spiritual um, the spiritual leaders of the country are supposed to be dealing with the hearts of people, right? But the government's responsibility is to be the sword, right? It's to enforce what should be normal, um, kind of common behavior and to prevent any group of people from being able to um, to, to oppress or harm or, you know, to, to have any kind of acts of violence against another group without, uh, you know, unequivocally without any without any kind of retribution, right? And we, you know, and I've talked about it before, you and I've talked about like, you can't pull a fire alarm without paying a fine, but you can call the cops on black people for no reason. And so even when you like, even if you just take a a scenario and then extrapolate the financial impact of you impeding somebody's liberty, right? So like if you and I are, are in a car and then somebody calls the cops on me because they think I look suspicious, like you and I could have been on the way to work Right. So now I'm late to work. I've been detained by the police. Right. I can potentially lose my job. Right. Or I'm losing income, especially if I'm being paid by the hour. If I'm an entrepreneur, I could be on my way to a project that could damage my reputation. Like you pausing my life, first of all, is a violation of the Constitution because it's illegal. Right. You're illegally detaining me for no reason. Right. Which is which, you know, legal search and seizure is against the Constitution. So you detaining me for any reason that's unlawful is unconstitutional to begin with. So it should be illegal. 
right? So, but just, just in that example, like, all right, you're stopping me. Now I have to justify to you why I'm supposed to be here or why I'm not guilty of a crime that you didn't see me commit. Then I've got to wait for the police to get here. Then when the police get here, I have to explain this to the police. During this entire time, like my freedom is being impinged upon because I wanted to go on about my business, right? That's one debate I had with a friend of mine because like this guy walked up to the, um, like a black woman and her friend that were in the park having a picnic and just started yelling like racist slurs and all this crazy stuff on it. And then there was another guy, I think he was in Florida, who stopped this black woman and her husband who were riding bikes um, in their own neighborhood. And he was basically questioning them if they belonged in the neighborhood. Like I'm, I'm gonna tell people like, I'm not, from now on, if a white person tries to interrupt me while I'm doing something, I'm gonna just start screaming kidnapping, <laughs> right? Because if, if you're unlawfully stopping me from going somewhere I wanna go, isn't that kidnapping? Like if I want to walk past you and go on about my business, but you're blocking me and then pretend and then you're actually offering some kind of threat of verbal or physical violence. If I don't do what you say. Right. Like that's that's assault and it's kidnapping. Right. So there's like like because like you think about that, if you were on if again, let's put you and I in a scenario. If you and I are on a sidewalk and some women are walking by and we refuse to let them go by. We're going to get arrested <laughs> for whatever reason, even if we got corny, lame pickup lines, right? Like whatever it is, if we stop those women from doing what they want to do and they call the cops, I'm pretty sure we would get arrested for harassment, for stalking, for disorderly conduct, for disturbing the peace, for something. But when people do this and, they, and the reason, the root behind why they're doing it is racism, it seems like you leave it up to the minority or to whoever it is that's being offended, or you know what I mean, that's that's basically succumbing to the the violence and the ignorance of the racism, they have to prove it. But I'm like, I shouldn't have to prove it. I want to walk past and this person isn't letting me walk past. Why do I have to prove that they're racist? The fact that they're stopping me from exercising my constitutional right is illegal and you need to arrest them, right? Like they've wasted my time. And not only do you need to arrest them, now they need to pay for my time. I know how much my time is per hour and I've spent an hour and a half with this stupid person in the police that they wound up calling. So now you owe me that much money and you need to pay the police that much money for wasting their time as well. But like, we don't, we don't do that. Right. We just allow the cops to be an extension of people's stupidity, which then makes the police look racist. Cause I, I asked a friend of mine, Bruce, that was, he's a, he's a police officer in Minnesota. And I asked him, I said, is there actually, and you know, both of us are, are in, in, in the technology service field. So I asked him, I said, is there any triage for people who call in? Like when you call in and you know, and it's, it's, it's Karen, right? Just calling in and be like, I think these kids are illegally selling water. I'm like, is there anybody that's like, ma'am, that's not a crime. You, you can't report that, right? Like, and you know what he told me? He said, absolutely not. He's, they're basically a pass through. So the dispatchers have to pass through like every complaint to a police officer. So like, even if we just had a racist filter on the 911 call, or even just a stupid filter, we would have our police officers doing much more with the tax money we're paying them instead of responding mm -hmm. to every neurotic, racist, <laughs> fearful, right? Bored, stalking <laughs> um, call that comes in via 911. But they, I'm sure for insurance and liability reasons and whatever else, the police have to respond to everything. So if we got a bunch of racist people calling the cops and it seems like they use 911 more than everybody else, how are we not going to wind up with a police force that looks racist? Right. Well, and, and that goes back to the, to the law aspect of this thing. The, the, 
government and state government have the power to go, you know what, from now on, we're screening these calls. And if, you know, okay, so we'll give you one. Okay, you, you call in on somebody, we give you that. You don't know. But the second, third, fourth, how many times are you going to call in before they're just like, you need to shut up. <laughs> At a certain point, there, there needs to be accountability for that person. Like everything cannot fall on the cop's shoulders. Everything cannot fall on dispatch's shoulders. Like there has to be some accountability for the people that are calling in. You know, I, I get it. It's midnight and you got someone out wandering the streets. You don't know who they are. You've never seen them before. And you feel a little nervous. Okay. You know what? We'll give you that one. But if you're doing this over and over and over again, the state had the power to be like, you know what? The ninth time, maybe it's time for, you know, Karen over there to, to, to take matters into, you know, like go, go and investigate. And I get the fact that they're like, well, it, that ninth time might be that time she gets hurt. Well, the boy who cried wolf, you know, we read these stories to our children. Yeah. There's only so much we can do. There's only so much, like you said, resources that we're going to waste on these type of things before, before what? Like you said, the police are labeled racist. Um, Black people are labeled as criminals because this happens every single time. And you alluded this to you alluded to this before that all they need is that one time to be justified, right? Ninety nine times they walk down your street, everything's fine, but that one time that they called the cops and and it was actually something. Well, they just justified the ninety nine times, and that's not how it should be. Ever. Yeah, right. And so now ninety nine innocent people will succumb to um, right succumb to your stereotypes and. Um, and your prejudices so you can catch one, right? And that's uh, was, like on The Office, it was like, um, the it was Kevin. He was like, a fluke is the most, uh, a fluke is the most common, is one of the most common fish in the sea. So there's a chance that if you go fishing for a fluke, you might <laughs> find one. And that's how I feel racist people are. Like, I'm going to pretend that everybody is a criminal and potentially out to harm me. So then if somebody actually punches me in my face, then like, I'm not crazy, right? When like, maybe somebody punched you in your face because they heard about the other 99 times you've been racist and you run into the person who has less patience um, with, your, with, your, with your preferences. But all right, so we talked about like one negative, one negative experience you had wearing a shirt. What was, what was, the, or what was the most interesting experience you've had or interaction? Because what I'll say real quick, I find it interesting. No one's come up to me to say anything about my shirt. <laughs> oh. So I've got a couple of acknowledgements, like I've got some head bobs, right, for some black people. I've got some head nods from what I'm assuming are some more progressive, um, you know, some more progressive white people. But like when I get the little like, you know, I know what you're talking about, like the little side head tilt when they read the shirt, right? Like, hmm, especially a lot of the Karens and Kins that'll kind of cock the head to the side. Um, But like no one's been bold enough (laughs) to think that a black guy wearing a make racism illegal shirt is the person you want to have a conversation with around racism. Um, so I'm, I'm interesting to see what they actually manage to come out their mouth with when they confront you with it. So the, the two, so I had, I had one, the, the two interactions that I had that were the most interesting was one was extremely positive and one was, was really borderline. Like I'm getting the hell out of here yeah. type one. Um, so the first one, the, the, the negative one was, was it was a gentleman at Walmart and, um, he was a black gentleman and he came up to me and goes, what do you mean by this? And why is make racism illegal in black and the shirt is white? (laughs) And I said, 
And I said, well, that's just the, you know, like you want to see the, the message, okay, off the white shirt. It was the most contrast colors. And he goes, we don't need your help in this. And I'm like, this, this is not about me. I'm supporting someone who is uh, affected by this. And I'm showing my support for him and getting his message out there. And hopefully I can sell a couple t-shirts for him. But I wholeheartedly believe in what he believes in. And that's why I'm out here wearing this shirt. Yeah. And he goes, well, well, again, we don't need people's help, especially like you, uh, to fight this war. We've been doing it for 400 years or, or whatever he said, um, and, and we'll do it for the next 400 years until we get what we want. And I'm like, we're, we're, we're after the same thing. Like, we are both after the exact same thing. I'm not out here to try to single out you or anybody else. I'm wearing the shirt in the support of a friend, and it just so happens to be something I believe in it as well. Um, and he goes, so if you didn't believe in this, you wouldn't wear it? It's like, no. Again, you're, you're misinterpreting what I'm saying. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm supporting a friend of mine in his endeavors. He's had some experiences with this. I've talked to him about it. Um, he's made a lot of sense with what he says, and I've adopted it to myself. Now, that's that's what I'm going with this. And he, the guy was like, right, what exactly do you mean by make racism illegal? We talked about the police thing real quick. And he goes, well, what happens if I want to call the cops on a white woman 99 times? And I said, you would be in the same boat as if a white person called the cops on you. It, it, this is not a color thing. This is, this is a, well, it, it, it's not just a black or white thing. This is a yeah, it's an anti-racist thing, right? Not yeah. a not a not an anti-white or anti-black or pro-black. It's anti-racist. Yeah. Well, the more he talked, the more I talked about it. The back and forth, he got more and more aggressive, um, and, and just just to the point where I was like, you know what? You have a really nice day. I got to get going. And he's yelling from behind me. I'm not done talking to you, and stuff like that. Because this was obviously a person that was set in their ways, and I'm not going to get through to them and I think a large part of that was because I was white and I just want to say this is not the types of situations that I get in with people all the time and it just so happens this was one person that had for whatever reason really really bad uh stand towards me so and then the really positive thing that I had was an older gentleman same Walmart just want to throw that out there uh Another black Birthday gentleman. Of Walmart. <laughs> a plug yeah. for a plug for Walmart <laughs> yeah. and inclusion. Everyone's welcome. Yeah. Um, and it was an older black gentleman. Um, he was super nice about the whole thing. And he got on board with the police thing. And he goes, I really never thought about making it financially responsible for people. He goes, I've seen people getting fired over the internet and stuff like that. He goes, but I don't feel like that's the normal. I'm like, that's going to be the new normal. We have cameras everywhere. Everyone's holding a camera. Yeah. Okay. Someone's videotaping you for everything you say. And he, he asked me the question, he goes, well, well, what generation do you think is really doing this? And I'm like, I never really thought about that. I, I've seen it where there's middle-aged people. And he goes, well, in my experience, racism comes from your guys' older generation, my generation. Where, where there was a divide. And I was like, I, I honestly couldn't tell you. I'm, I'm not in your position, yeah. right? Yeah. All I see is what's going on. And 
you know, I said, well, my, my boss, he's a year younger than me. And, you know, he, he's experienced uh, multiple things. I mean, I, I, I've never talked to him in depth about it, but um, from what he tells me, he's experienced some, some racism with cops and, and with other people. Um, he's an activist. And yeah, I gave him your name and, and so on and so forth. And, um, he liked the fact that you were a pastor. He was, he was very adamant about that. So not good on you for that. But, you know, and I, I told him about you. I told him you're, you're an executive, you're a vice president. You go around and you, you talk with people about field service and so on and so forth. And he, he goes, we need more young, black, accomplished people like that to make these laws, to make racism illegal. And he goes, that's, that's the biggest thing that I see from my neighborhood is no one's moving up anywhere. No one has had any ambitions to go into law or police or government and make those changes. They just kind of are pushing it off to the government and say, fix this for me. You better do it. If you don't, then we're going we're gonna to riot your streets. And I don't have the answers for you, but I do appreciate your take on everything. And yeah, he was a very nice gentleman and he, he really put his spin on things and he's like you know accounted we have to we all have to be accountable for our actions white people have got to recognize the fact that 0.1 percent of us are assholes yeah it's just how it's every ever you know we, we all have people that are, are are bad but we're not all bad and black people need to recognize the fact that we need to bring each other up we need more lawyers we need more government officials. We need more young black men running for president and, and to make these changes. Like it, it's, it's, it's a whole country's problem, not, not just us, or not just uh, one race or the other. So, so he, he was my better of the experiences. Then the other ones were just like a, like a scoff or, a, or a, you know, yeah. stuff. And, and I was surprised. I thought, honestly, a more uh, white people were going to approach me about this uh, than anything because they seemed to be more openly to speak about this, but that just wasn't the case. They were very, you know, just walk by with the head tilt keep going. Yeah, like if, if you had on a Black Lives Matter shirt, they would have they would have had more to say, right? And I think that's the the interesting dynamic of, right, because talking about racism from a legal perspective is a policy discussion, not an emotional discussion. Right. So that's why you described the first guy, like his response to racism is an emotional one. Right. He feels like, you know, I, and, and I and I know people like that. There was a, probably a period in my life where I felt the same. Right. Like, I don't want a white savior. Right. I don't I don't want white people swooping into our neighborhood or into our situation and fixing everything for us. Right. And and holding the picket signs on our behalf. So it's kind of like, um, but it's funny when you talk to the older gentleman. Right. Who's obviously probably seen more transitions, more overt racism and he's seen that kind of transition over time and kind of linger in one generation and he's hopeful uh, for some of the younger generations it's just the difference in the way that people have perceived and kind of interacted with racism right because like when you you know when you talk you talk about their first guy like i can you know i mean like i like i he's the person that i saw at most of these protests right because the one thing i noticed about going to the protests is people were just angry and I'm not a, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not an emotional person, right? Even though I do all of this stuff on social media, like from a, from an engagement perspective, I'm more of an introvert than an extrovert. So, like, I'm not just gonna go somewhere and scream and and express my emotion. I'd write a song about it or a spoken word poem or something, you know what I mean, or an article or something like that. That's just the difference. But 
there was so much like tangible anger and frustration and um and just pain that you heard at the events and especially at the later kind of nighttime events that were intended to kind of be riots like there was there was no direction in it though right like that's why like when you said when you're talking (laughs) to the guy and you're like putting out specific things like it's not like he has a specific plan in response right like he's just mad (laughs) and he doesn't know what to do with the anger and so from a generational perspective that's one thing that I see that that's a gap in a generation, right? I can, I can say black lives matter, but it's like, and then what? And some people would criticize me for saying that, but I'm like, okay, black lives matter. So what do you want to do about it? Right? What's the specific thing that you want to address? Like, okay, police brutality is an issue. Are you trying to outlaw the chokehold? Are you trying to get rid of no knock warrants that are like the ones that killed Breonna Taylor and have killed hundreds and hundreds and probably thousands of people over the years, even when the cops knock on the wrong door or have the wrong address on a warrant, right? So like they're very policy-driven systemic things that can be addressed, right? Community oversight of the police department, simple things like penalizing people or even arresting people for filing a false police report, right? When the Amy Cooper stuff happened in Central Park in New York, she got arrested after the fact. Right. Not when he could clearly prove from his cop from the cops that came to Central Park because he had it all on his phone. (laughs) Right. Why didn't they arrest her then? Like, why did it take national outrage for the cops to actually hold people accountable to the law that we're all supposed to be equally, um, you know, set by? And because right. And like you said, if we're applying the law equally, it would flex both ways. If I'm out there on a corner telling white people to kiss my boot and I won't let them pass, then that's that's disturbing the peace. That's harassment. You should be arrested for that. But at the same time, if you're telling me I don't belong in a neighborhood or I can't do something or I'm not supposed to be somewhere and you're restricting my liberty, that's a violation of the Constitution. That should also be illegal. So it's like we got to hold people accountable. But since, you know, I mean, the hearts of men are not changing, then you got to hit the pockets or you got to restrict. You got to start restricting people's freedom. Right. I'm a pastor. So, of course, I, I believe in the change of hearts. But I also believe that everybody isn't religious. <laughs> everybody isn't Christian. Right. Like we all have to live in a melting pot world where there are people who have different beliefs, people who have no beliefs, people who have in between. <laughs> right. So, like, you have, you have to be able to have a society where I can't try to hold. I know I can't hold everybody. Even biblically, I know I can't hold everybody in the world to my moral standard. That's not a thing. Right. But that doesn't mean I don't expect people to not try to assault my children. Right. It's not like, oh, you guys just need Jesus. No, if you try to assault my daughter, you're going to meet a variety of hollow points like that. That's what's going to happen. Like, um, you know, I'm sorry. Like, I'm just you know, I'm, I'm, I'm called to protect my family. That is a requirement. Um, so, like, I, we can't dictate the morality of people. But the irony is. It's like, you know, we, we, we try to dictate morality through legislation, right? So when it comes to homosexuality, we try to dictate that with legislation. When it comes to ab- abortion, we want to dictate that with legislation. But then those same people, when it comes to race, especially in the religious, on the religious right, they'll say that, oh, we should just pray about it. But why aren't you like, why are you trying to legislate against homosexuality and you're trying to legislate against abortion and you're trying to legislate against, you know, uh, private employers having to provide birth control right and women's reproductive rights but when somebody stands up and says oh you should also legislate against racism it's like no 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 we should just pray about that that's a heart issue 
Like it's all a heart issue, <laughs> but why yeah. are you picking and choosing? Like which one? Like why can why is the KKK still an organization not recognized as a terrorist organization when they burned down houses, blown up buildings, right? Sponsored domestic terrorism for like almost uh, for like 60 plus 70, 80, 90 years, <laughs> right? And they're they're still allowed to do it. They still have nonprofit status. At a minimum, at least remove their 501c3 status. <laughs> Because they're clearly a hate group, right? Like the Black Panthers got systemically dis deconstructed by the federal government. It's documented, well known, <laughs> proven, right? All of their leaders were arrested. But the Ku Klux Klan is just chilling. Like they only got a the Ku Klux Klan only got attacked by uh, Superman in comic books. Like that's the only American figure, <laughs> and he's from Krypton. That's the only American figure that's taken on <laughs> racism was Superman fighting the Ku Klux Klan in a comic book. Like, America hasn't even done that. So if we can systemically try to break down the Black Lives Matter movement, if we could systemically break up the Black Panther movement, then, like, why can't we deconstruct, like, you know, white power organizations and, you know, neo-Confederates and neo-Nazis um, in the Klan, right? So, like, from that perspective to me, because, right, like, you know, obviously Islamic terrorism is illegal in the U.S., so if you get on blog posts and start talking about blowing up U.S. monuments and you're Muslim, the feds come to your house. But if you're white and start talking about shooting up black barbecues in Juneteenth celebrations, which is, which happened in different places around the country, nobody shows up at your door because it's not a federal crime. Right. Because the domestic terrorism by white men isn't a crime, even though it's the most frequent form of terrorism in America. So. That's why, like, you know, so it's just interesting to me that you have that, even you had that dynamic in the, like, polarized ones were from different, um, were from different Black people, because one of the challenges I have is dealing with the Black, dealing with the same Black person that got mad at you, right? Because I believe in, like, a coalition. I believe in having allies and advocates. I believe that we're all made in the image of God and we're all equal, right? So it's like, um, to me, white supremacy is just as harmful to white people as it is to black people, right? Because because you think about it, for you to be deathly afraid of everyone that's black is a mental issue, right? right? Like your, your racism is with you all the time. Your racism only, in, 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 you know, like someone's racism only impacts me when I encounter them. So it's like they're holding on to venom all day, waiting to spew it on somebody. Like that's bad, right? Like that that's not healthy for anybody, right? When you think like you're genuinely afraid that every black person you see is gonna steal your car or like kill your kids or like rape you, like that's a weird mental place to be in. You know what? Here's a quick question. Uh, two things. One, making the KKK illegal is such low hanging fruit and so easy to do, and it would have such an amazing impact. It's kind of like what the hell. Two, we briefly touched on this aspect, and I was kind of thinking about this as you were talking, was we, we are quick to call the police when a black man roams through the neighborhood because we perceive him as a threat, correct? And yeah. 99 times out of that 100, it's not. Again, I don't know these statistics, but mind you, I'm just throwing it out there for, for, for talking to people. So how come we can't do the same thing for starting programs in, in these lower economic places? Like 99 people might fail out of that program, but you get that one person that goes through. Doesn't it make it worth the 99? 
yeah. for these types of situations. Like we, we are so afraid to put our money where we're going to fail 99 times, but that's how the greatest businesses and ideas have ever come across have been done. You didn't fail 99 times. You just found the wrong way to do something 99 times. And once you found that hundred time and succeed, now you can start copying and pasting it everywhere. Not everyone's going to respond to it. Some people are just, you know, jerks. That's, there's no getting around that. If we yeah. never actually get in there and try, if we never actually go in, and I know from listening to Ben Shapiro, we've, we've spent quite a lot of money in trying to uh, raise up some of the lower income places and stuff like that. But to my response to all of that is, is then we were doing it wrong. Yeah. You know, it, it, we can't stop trying because we've done something wrong before and, and things like that. So if people want to play statistics, remember, we can always do the statistics on the other side of things, too, and go, well, how come we're not giving that one person that chance to go and do something great? Yeah. Because even, of the other you know? even when you look at the basics of, like, the immigration process in the U.S., right, the amount of effort and education and incentives and stuff that we offer to like every immigrant that comes into the country. We don't offer that to every person in the low income neighborhood, right? We don't make sure every person in a low income neighborhood understands life insurance and, um, and medical insurance and budgeting, but that's a requirement for anyone that immigrates into the U S right. The going through the immigration process, like you have to learn civics, right? Like they, they want to make sure that you're not going to be dependent upon the state. So there's even opportunities and information that we offer. And that's a requirement for everyone who comes into the country, but we can't even offer that same level of education to all the people who already live here. Right? Like there, there are immigrants that get tax, you know, they get tax free loans to start businesses because we don't want them being dependent upon the state, but you know, you can barely get free education to go to college or you can, you know, you're in a, you're in a, you're in a public school system that doesn't even prepare you for secondary education. So when you're in a low income level, so you can actually get Pell Grants to go to college, your high school was so poor from an educational perspective that you can't catch up to actually perform at a collegiate level. So then you wind up not making it. And then, you know, like you said, people will be like, well, investing in Pell Grants doesn't work. Like investing in Pell Grants work, right? I'm the 99. I went to college on Pell Grants and I'm doing pretty well. Right. So it's like it, it's proof that it works. But what was crazy for me is that graduating from high school, I had no idea. I had never heard of a Pell Grant, Bruce. Like I did not know that if you filled out a FAFSA form and your family was poor, largely the government paid for you to go to college. No one told me that in 12 years of my life as like an honor student. Right. Who excelled at every state test you know, obviously intelligent, normally well above my classmates. No one ever told me that I was poor and I could go to college for free. When I found out my freshman year, when I got that Pell Grant, I called everybody I knew from the hood or who I knew was poor and said, guess what? You can go to college for free. And they mm -hmm. had never heard it. Right. So there's, there's basic, there's even some stuff that already exists. So people talk about these programs that are out there. A lot of these programs aren't, uh, you know, there aren't, they're, they're not well marketed. People don't know about the opportunities. And then, like you said, and some of them were just doing them wrong, right? Like, you know, if you're teaching people a, a dying vocational skill, that doesn't help, right? Start training people to be in field service and to deal with automation, right? Like we'll yeah. hire them and pay them $55,000 a year and they can lift an entire generation of people out of poverty. 
just by getting a different kind of job, like giving, you know, paying grocery stores to hire high school kids to collect carts is not going to raise a family out of poverty. It's not. You got to give them a skill, right? You got to give them something that's marketable. We got to start spreading people out. Like I tell my my kids and we drove across the country from uh, from Delaware when we moved out to Colorado. I'm like, you drive and there's so many areas that are just open space. Yeah, you've got metropolitan areas where people literally live on top of each other by the thousands, right? And so being able to try to sustain workable jobs, right? Like half of the population is going to wind up in a service industry just because you can't build any other industry in an area that's overpopulated. So like, why aren't we investing in like new urban centers, right? Let's build up new technology hubs and new manufacturing hubs and all of this other stuff and start to to like move the metropolitan areas and give people opportunities for growth in areas that have lower cost of living, um, but higher income potentials, right? There's a lot of stuff we do. There's a lot of smart people out there who are researching it and, um, and trying to think of different approaches of how to address some of the, you know, the income disparities, the education disparities, but like, it doesn't get better by us ignoring it and thinking that, you know, that if, you know, if we just give it enough time, everybody will wind up at the same level. Cause I think that's where it's been, right? Like, mm-hmm. well, just give it, you know, it's, it's, it's been, you know, like, you know, like the one dude, oh, we've been fighting for ourselves for 400 years. First of all, we were never fighting by ourselves because the rest of the abolitionists were white, right? <laughs> A lot of people in the civil rights movement were white. People who fought against Jim Crow laws were white. Some of the attorneys that were involved with the NAACP and Plessy versus Ferguson and, um, and Brown versus the Board of Education were white, right? Anybody who watched Marshall, <laughs> the third good Marshall story, realizes the other lawyer was white. Um, so mm-hmm. it's always been an ally kind of um, discussion. And it's, you know, and it's never been like, you know, the, the one the white person involved got kind of lauded. But honestly, like if you if you have white people who know and understand the system, then why wouldn't you allow them to help you? Right. Like that's just that's just pride and pride doesn't do anybody justice. So. I think there's a lot of ways that we can be humble and learn from one another um, just as American citizens. But there are, there, you know, like you said, there's easy, low hanging fruit, right? Like, you know, if Kamala and Joe Biden want to do something to win my to win my vote, just make, you know, white supremacist groups, terrorist organizations. And you've done something right there that no one else has, choos- has chosen to do in the in the foundation of the country since 1776, which is to make white supremacy something that we don't accept as a national pastime in America. Because um, the only white supremacist group, so in April of 2020, the Trump administration identified one white supremacist group and declared them a terrorist organization, but they were from Russia. <laughs> so it was a non-American white supremacist group. And I'm like, how do you skip over all the white supremacist groups in America and then declare one in Europe, a terrorist organization, when you have plenty of them here, we actually export it. <laughs> Right, like white power and racism to other countries. Like they use the Confederate flag <laughs> in Europe as a representation of white power. That's that's an American thing, right? Like we inherit some of our you know neo-Nazi groups use the the uh, the swastika and the Nazi flag, but there are people who use the Confederate flag in Europe and all over the world to represent racism. Yet in America, we say it's Southern pride. When I don't know what Southern pride they had in the Ukraine. Uh, but they use that flag to represent uh, white power. But, you know, it's funny you say that too. Uh, I recently learned that in Singapore, um, government, the government builds up a lot of the neighborhoods, a lot of the housing, and government requires 
that neighborhood to reflect the country's demographic. So that means if like, say me and you were to move into a, a, a development together, that means 14% of everybody in that development needs to be black. Yeah. 4% needs to be, you know, so on and so forth. And I always thought that was a very interesting, and I understand it's very un-American because now you're taking away people's choice where to live and who to live by. But at the same time, it's kind of like, maybe that's what we need. Maybe it's time. The other cool thing about Singapore is that Singapore also in those developments and like the high rises that you're talking about. And I learned this when mm-hmm. I went there last May um, for work, actually, uh, one of the guys that worked there told me, so like if you, when you buy us, so they buy those um, and they don't buy them because you can't own property in that area. So, but you do like mm-hmm. a 50 year lease. So when you move into like one of those high, those high rises, the lease is based on your income. So you could live in like, you can have the same exact like apartment or flat or townhouse and the amount that you pay is different than your neighbor because the, the entire leasing structure in Singapore is subsidized by the government. And once you lock in that lease, you have the lease for 50 years. So then people hand it down in their family. And what it allows them to do is it allows them to build generational wealth because when you start it, so when you say when you first signed your 50 year lease, you were making $20,000 a year, but then, you know, you graduate from college or you and your wife's career progress, and then you guys have children and now you're making 80 or $90,000 a year. You can transfer the lease over to your kids. And now your children are paying the lease based on your old $20,000 income. And you can actually go get another house in another, in another area. So they're like, they're generations of people who wind up living in the same one. And then at the end of that, when they want to, if they want to get out of that lease, they can actually, they can kind of like sell the lease and take the equity out of it. So then they wind up with money invested based on subsidized housing from the government. So it allows families to accumulate wealth. Um, and that's what one of the guys was telling me. And he was like, it's just real cool. Cause you kind of get in and then as your income comes up, you move out, but then you move out with money because you wind up with equity because um, because of just the way that they run the system. But like you said, it seems un-American, right? To give people equity, right? And that's what that is, right? We always wanna talk about equality. It's not about equality, it's about equity, right? When you talk about the fact that like the average black family has 10 cents in wealth compared to white families, like that's insane, but it, it, it mean, but it makes sense, right? You had generations where people had property and land and insurance policies in generations where people could not own land, could not own property, and didn't have um, and didn't have insurance policies. So, like, the, when you look at that gap, at some point, you've got to do something to try um, to correct it. If you want people to actually have equity, that means you know because there was a disproportionate investment for a significant period of time in white America, right? Like, white America has more and has access to more wealth, right? Like, I, I know poor people with trust funds. Right. Because somewhere in between their grandparents and them, uh, like the generation between them and their grandparents squandered their money. But like mm-hmm. they still have a trust fund. So all they got to do is turn 25, 25 or 21. And they got like two hundred fifty thousand dollars in the bank. But like now they living in like a trailer park. So it's like even in that, like they get the benefit of that generational wealth because of the trust and how the estate was set up, even though they're, you know, their parents or even sometimes their grandparents squandered 
whatever wealth that they had. So it's like, okay. And I know, and I mean, I know a lot of white people are like, I didn't have it a certain way, but I'm like, yeah, that's because somewhere in the generations, unless you migrated here, right? Because there are a lot of Americans, a lot of white Americans who immigrated to America in like the 40s and 50s. So they kind of came post-slavery, but those families in America, and just like every black person in America isn't a descendant of an American slave, right? So, but if you're a descendant from like the original plantation owning white people in this country, like they had wealth at some point, they either still have it or they lost it, (laughs) right? But if you're a descendant of a slave, they had nothing, they were given nothing and they worked with nothing. So, right, like from an investment perspective, there was an investment and land was given to and property was given to and wealth was given to white families with the foundation of America that black people didn't have. So there was a head start um, that that people are still trying to catch up on. So there's, I mean, there's a lot of work to be done, man. But I just wanna, I just wanna say I appreciate your boldness to make. I mean, between you know, my my shirts are like one that says I'm a Christian, which a lot of people don't want to wear, and then one that says make racism illegal, which also a lot of people don't want to wear because my my shirts cause that kind of tilt of the head. Um, but they also they also do spark some some meaningful conversation. So I, I appreciate the fact that you're you're willing to wear it and then also have that discussion and even share my story um, to a certain degree to allow people um, to relate to it and even point people to more com- um, to more content. Right. Because we can talk about hashtags and everything else. But if we're not actually trying to put policy in place to drive change um, or even if we don't even understand the change that we want to see. We'll be like the one brother you ran into, which is just angry, right? But but with no direction and with no, um, and with energy, but not with energy to passionately put towards something that'll actually change our situation. So if I'm gonna be mad, I'm gonna be constructively mad. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and actually, try to to buy for something that'll at least make it better for my son and for my children, um, for for my younger cousins and and friends, right? As I learn things to to share it with them and then to advocate for things to change. So now that I'm here in North Carolina, I will be getting involved in local government and you know engaging with people locally and then trying to make an impact in my community. Cause we can get distracted by national things, right? And it makes it feel like we're a part of a movement because we're trending or following or something. But if I can't change the community that I live in and the communities that are adjacent to me, then I'm wasting space on this earth. So uh, that's what I'm gonna focus on trying to do, man. But I appreciate you um, joining me, man. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap it up and go to family game night here um, <laughs> with the family because that's what we got scheduled on Wednesdays, man. But um, but give your love to my wife, man. Make sure you break out some more of that that jerk chicken and share it with oh, me. so I'm good. Sure, show your son licking on the bones <laughs> <laughs> um, and getting it down, man. But uh, thanks for joining me, man. We'll definitely have you back. Um, and just appreciate your support, man. And always. Um, being willing to share some some savage truth. So, <laughs> well, thanks for having me on. I do appreciate it. Just go ahead and say a bold statement: Dockery twenty twenty four. Let's do this. <laughs> you're, you're eligible, man. You're eligible. Um, if AOC can be in the uh, if AOC can can get up in there, then then why not you? We'll see. We gotta so, find, we gotta find some sponsors. Maybe NASCAR. They they riding with Bubba Wallace. Maybe I can get some change from them. <laughs> they took the Confederate flag down. I think I can rock with them now. Uh, but, but right, man. Uh, it, man. Enjoy you, that uh, California afternoon you got out there. <laughs> will do. Will do. And uh, again, it was great talking to you, and I'll be talking to you later. 
All right. Thanks, Bruce. Take it easy, man. Talk to you later. Thank you. Sometimes you feel like running. Just got to pay attention to what you're running to. I see you looking for a message in the bottom of that bottle Hope to numb the pain away so your foot is on the throttle Headed to that getaway where you can blaze something hotter Let the smoke be the haze cause you can't see tomorrow Heart hollow like a tin man Looking for a wizard at the end of a prescription Now you struggle with addiction Body beating with affliction So you looking for some peace Find it in between the sheets And now you feel so cheap So you running for the money But success steals your time Now you broken and alone But your bank account's fine So you climb up on the balcony Trying to escape the agony Hoping that the fall makes your life end Tragically, so you're looking at the pavement and you hear a still voice that says, I'm here to save deliverance, your choice. So take a step and follow me, the road is real narrow. I'll catch you when you fall, don't let this short life scare you. I'm running to eternity before my time's up. I'm imperfect, so it worries me, my problems line up. So I'm running, facing my fears, I see my destiny, I'm running. Losing my peers, nobody's next to me. I'm running to eternity before my time's up. I'm imperfect, so it worries me, my problems line up. So I'm running, facing my fears, I see my destiny, I'm running. Losing my peers, nobody's Next to me. Picture me running while struggles keep piling up The hand of God is a whisper, I'm feeling the silent touch The walk can never be easy when I'm living, he the crush I run away in my car, Michael Johnson in the clutch I clutch the Bible in need of a prayer when I'm in disgust I know the world can be crazy, but it's me that it's hard to trust Cause still I struggle with anger, retaliation's a must How can I just walk away, I'm supposed to show him what's up But Lord, I hear you crying, cause you want better for me That's why I'm walking by faith, it's getting harder to see But my strength is renewed, turn my back, then I hurdle that So they tryna put them shells in my spine Turtle back, protected by God, I shoot for the shooting stars. I move to get through these walls. This path is suited for all. See, I'm running out of time, but God is one running through. So instead of running away, my brother, I'm running through. Easy. I'm running to eternity before my time's up. I'm imperfect, so it worries me. My problems line up, so I'm running. Facing my fears, I see my destiny. I'm running, losing my peers, nobody's next to me. I'm running to eternity before my time's up. I'm imperfect, so it worries me. My problems line up, so I'm running. Facing my fears, I see my destiny. I'm running, losing my peers, nobody's I had to jetty leave myself from the old me And leave my friends and the loved ones I call homies And y'all ain't understand, I get it cause you know me But if you see what's deep inside, you see the old me They say right there that be the God in me So I'm praying you see the God, that's the God I see Deeply in waters, probably laughing cause the faith I see And I ain't walking cause the smoke clear But when I was sick and down, heard you so clear Comfort the wind, the death felt so near I was a hoe, I was a thief, I let you know here Keep it 100, I throw it in the song clear Cause if you see me now, this be to change me God took me, renew my mind and he changed me And you can't tell me the thing that he ain't paid, see Man, he gave me a new life and paid roads See me running to the throne I'm running to eternity before my time's up I'm imperfect, so it worries me My problems line up, so I'm running Facing my fears, I see my destiny I'm running, losing my peers Nobody's next to me I'm running to eternity before my time's up I'm imperfect, so it worries me My problems line up, so I'm running Facing my fears, I see my destiny I'm running, losing my peers Nobody's next to me